Let's pray together. So, Father, we're asking now for the mind of Christ, that we might see the cross and see all the paths leading from it, leading to it, in the light of your Spirit-given truth. So if there's any in this room who does not have the mind of Christ, by the Spirit, I pray that that miracle would happen in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a worship service, not a public lecture. The act of worship is not mainly the transfer of information. It's mainly the exaltation of the heart over the truth, the beauty, the worth, the power, the might of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. The sermon in a worship service does not come after worship or before worship. It is worship. If the preacher is not exulting over what he is explaining, he's not preaching. So I don't want you, when you see the title of this message, Biblical Foundations for a Church-Based Christian College, to take off your worship garment and put on your academic garment. Don't do that. This is a worship service. I don't want you to stop hungering and longing. Show us God. Show us things about Jesus that will make our hearts soar. This is a worship service. The works of God matter. One of the amazing works of God that you should behold is that in the last 25 years of the life of this church, God formed a seminary and a college both fully accredited by the Association of Biblical Higher Education, both incorporated under the laws of the state of Minnesota. And I emphasize God did that, not because human instruments aren't important, but because the horses made ready for the day of battle and victory belongs to the Lord. God is decisive. God is always decisive. Besides that, there's another reason why I underline God did that. God did that, seminary and college, is because in 1998, nobody in this church no pastor, no elder or council sat down and said, let's put in place an apprenticeship and then let's build on the apprenticeship an institute and then let's build on the institute a seminary and then let's build on the seminary a college. Nobody did that. It didn't happen that way. 
God grew this school organically from the DNA of that mission statement on the wall up there. It's been there for decades. In 1995, we as a church embraced that. We exist, let me stop here now and say almost every word. I mean, there might be an article that this is not true of. But almost every word in that statement is explosive with implications. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples with an S. through Jesus Christ. There are seeds in there. There's a DNA in there. That mission statement has been germinating, the seeds in it, in God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated corporate worship for decades. And God himself, who loves to be exalted as supreme in the lives of his people, organically grew Bethlehem College and Seminary for that mission. The spreading of a passion for the supremacy of God in everything that you could possibly study, for the joy of every unreached people in the world through our King Jesus. I love that mission statement. It's the mission statement of my life. Kenny may take it off the wall someday because things change. It'll never go off the wall of my heart. It's okay for churches to have different mission statements. Totally okay. That's ours. For his glory, for the advancement of his mission, for your joy, you need to know about this school. <laughs> you do. And I'm thinking especially of members of Bethlehem. I mean, we got a lot of visitors here, I know that. You can listen in if you want. The members of this church need to know what God has done. The legal corporation of Bethlehem College and Seminary is owned and supported by Bethlehem College and Seminary and the North Church. There's a corporation of the school. The corporation has two members. The members are Bethlehem Baptist Church and the North Church. The elders of those two churches approve and appoint the trustees of the school. The trustees oversee the school, appointing the president, guarding the vision. 
And you, as members of one of those two churches, vote on who those elders are. You get it? You get it? You affirm the elders. The elders affirm the trustees. The trustees call the president and oversee the vision. The president builds a faculty, and the faculty bring the vision to life for students. If you're a member of this church, you own a school, and it's an amazing school to own and shepherd. Now, my focus this morning is on the college, not the seminary. Most Christians know that the church of Jesus Christ will always need pastors, <laughs> elders, ambassadors globally, just like our medical system needs doctors who get trained near hospitals, and therefore we think it's really a good idea to train pastors in churches. I'm not talking about that. I think you get that. College is another reality. Like, what is that? A lot of Christians do not have a clear sense of what is a college and why would there be one connected to a church? I mean, you got University of Minnesota across the highway with 50,000 students. Couple hundred students here, what's that? Here's the first thing to say, and this is really important for a lot of you to hear. God does not plan for everybody to go to college or to go to a school like ours. I have been blown away recently by allowing myself to just sit in a chair and think about the complexity of modern life. <laughs> I mean, just like the Twin Cities. We're talking about the Twin Cities. This is not to mention the world. Let me put it in biblical framework. Jesus said in Matthew 5.45, God makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, there is common grace, as distinct from saving grace, there's common grace poured out every day on this city, this wicked city, holding it in being. Sustaining it. Right? Hebrews 1.3 Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Including the Twin Cities. Holds it in being. Every one of its million processes that make it all work. Amazing. So there are hundreds of thousands of unbelievers gifted by God, graced by God, 
to find their way in fitting in to the systems that make this city work. I mean, just go with me for a minute. Think of getting clean water, drinkable water, to every single apartment in this city, and taking away all the waste, all of it unseen. Turn the handle. That's a miracle. Every place got clean water. Think of electricity. Every block of the city running a thousand kinds of devices and lighting up every room in the city. You don't do a thing except pay some taxes. And you shouldn't complain about that. <laughs> Good night. Construction. Look at the buildings. Think of the phases of construction. Think of the hundreds of expertise that go into designing and building and maintaining all the systems in a single building, like one that's 50 stories tall. Think of the roads. Roads! If you complain about a pothole, wake up! We got the best roads in the world. Almost. <laughs> Nothing would get to you. Nothing would get to you. How do they design roads, build roads, maintain roads? I should stop, but legal systems, legislatures, law courts, law enforcement, transportation, cars, trains, planes, designed, built, operated, maintained, coordinated, systems of communication. Oh my goodness, medical care. I can walk in 20 minutes from my house to four major hospitals. <gasps> this is paradise. Seriously. My wife fell on the ice. I couldn't get her up, pulled out my phone. They were there in five minutes. Praise God for common grace. We live in paradise. So the point of all that, and, and the list goes on and on and on. The point of all that is um, Colossians 1.17. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus holds this together, and hundreds of thousands of people never give him the thought of day when they turn on their water, or flush their toilets, or drive on a road, or call 911. He gets no praise from them at all, and they will give an account, and our job is to tell them about him. All that to say, it takes thousands of kinds of human interests, desires, abilities, skills, training, education to make modern society work, and there is zero presumption, zero biblical warrant for thinking everybody's going to go to college to fit into that amazing network of reality. That's crazy. 
for anybody to think college is the way forward for everybody in a world like ours with such amazing diversity of human beings and needs in the world. So we don't all need the same kind of education. We don't all need the same kind of training to fit into service in this world. Bethlehem College and Seminary is not for everyone. And you are neither the lesser nor the greater if God leads you to pursue human, mature discipleship of Jesus in a path of service other than through Bethlehem College. Now that word discipleship is crucial. So I'm making a transition here. Jesus said the task of the church is to make disciples, teach them, go, go reach all the nations, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them how to obey everything that I commanded about the supremacy of God in all things. That's Matthew 28, 19 to 20. So when a child is born in this church, Day one, start discipling, right? Day one. You should think that through, parents. Like, what does that look like for a five-day-old baby? Disciple this baby. Disciple them at two. Disciple them at 12. And disciple them at 18 to 25. A disciple of Jesus, a mature disciple of Jesus, is passionate for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. That's what we want to happen in our college. So why would we put so much focus and energy on that age group? I just ran, ran into Bud downstairs. There's Bud. And Bud oversees another age group, right? They're younger, being formed. And I said to him, I should be talking about that. And somebody should, right? The whole sermon devoted to why do we care about children in this church? Why do we, why do, we do 0 to 12 or 0 to 18? Andrew. Well, I'm not, but that's not because it isn't vastly important. Every age group matters. So I'm asking why, why would we put such a focus as to have a college for this age group, roughly 18 to 25. I'll give you two answers. One, at the time of the inception of this college, God had brought together a critical mass of people who shared the burden for that particular kind of school. That's the way things happen. That's the way new things come into being. God ignites a flame in a person, in a group. The vision burns. The flame spreads. And something new comes into being. Just think about yourself, your life. This has happened to most of you in this room. Or will. You could do a hundred things with your life right now. You could. You young people could do a hundred different things. What's going to happen? I could do a hundred things right now at 77. I'm free. I don't need anybody. 
Got all the money I need from all those, what, 17% Social Security hits I took for 40 years. Finally, I'm free! (laughs) So, here's how it happens. God puts a burden, a passion in here. It starts to burn, it starts to grow, and some people around you start to get infected, and something is born, a mission is born. Africa is on my heart, I can't get it off. So what's yours? I mean, that is the way it happens. It isn't rational in the sense, I got all the columns, plus, minus, do this, don't do this for these reasons, baloney. It doesn't work that way. God gives a passion. The passion grows or not, and something amazing happens, and a school happens, because God did it in the lives of a a handful of people who believe that's that's what we should do. So that's answer number one. It's the way your life works. It's the way churches work. Here's number two. Why focus so much on 18 to 25? It is a uniquely pivotal time in the life of a human being. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, a time to break down, a time to build, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. In our culture, now it's not the same in every culture around the world, not in the least the same, But in our culture, the time between 18 and 25 is a pivotal time to plant, to gather stones together, to build something that would last a lifetime. Let me use myself as an example. When I went to college at age 18, liberal arts college, I would say my faith was stable, even strong, having grown up in the home I did. But my sense of identity, what I would be in the world, how I could be useful in the world was weak and fragile. I had huge insecurities no sense of sure vocational call on my life. A cauldron of desires that needed a lot of shaping, maturing, guiding. Three things happened to my life, absolutely crucial to everything I've done since then. Number one, I fell in love madly with Noel Henry. And we have been committed to each other for 56 years, and I would pay all the tuition in all the schools of the world in order to get that, to get her. Now, she'll be here in the second service, and I'm going to look right at her. Okay, so she told me she's going to watch online because she's got a broken arm. And I said, 
I want you in the service, so she'll be here. <laughs> Number two, I heard the call of God unmistakably. Ministry of the Word of God, and it is as alive and compelling in this moment as it was in 1966. It's a thrilling thing to know, do this, John Piper. There's the, the burning. You can't explain it. It's just there because I just heard him preach. Harold John Uckengay. Number three, God in that same summer overcame a bondage that had kept me from being able to not be paralyzed in front of a group for 20 years. He overcame it. Now, I know that my experience is not necessarily typical of everybody. I'm just illustrating that kind of thing happens between 18 and 25. It does. For thousands and thousands of people, trajectories are set. If the trajectory is off, they don't land where they're supposed to land. We want to be God's agents of maturing, directing, liberating, even matchmaking for the glory of Christ. Now, instead of, okay, instead of taking you into the details of what it means to come here and study the great books in the light of the greatest book for the Great Commission. I'm going to go to the teachings of Jesus and point you to James McLaughlin's article this week, which you can go to the Bethlehem College and Seminary website and type in uh, media and blog, and there it is right at the top, that will explain what it is to do great books in the light of the greatest book for the Great Commission. So that's, I'm not going to do that now. I'm going to go to the teachings. I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6. And if you wonder where was 1 Corinthians 2, we're coming to that, but not the way you think. This is Mark chapter 6. And we want to get at what Jesus has to show us about the life of the mind, what education is, what the obstacles are, and how it relates to our school. So we're at chapter 6 in the Gospel of Mark, and he has just um, taken five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people. That's verse 44. He sends the disciples out into the Sea of Galilee, and he goes up to pray, and at three o'clock in the morning, he comes to them walking on the water. <laughs> I'm not going to walk on the water, so don't look to me. One teacher walks on water, he made it. So he's walking on the water. And what happens? Let's read verses 49 to 52. When they saw him walking on the sea, <laughs> I guess, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, 
take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Get this next verse. For they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't understand the loaves. And that's why they were so terrified. What? What does that mean? What does that mean? They didn't understand the loaves. It means that Jesus expected them to observe carefully what was happening when he multiplied the loaves. Number two, it means he expected them to understand its meaning and implications for who he was. Number three, it means he expected them to evaluate accurately how valuable he is, how powerful he is, and how trustworthy he is to take care of them. I'll tell you, I've been using this this morning. I mean, he fed the 5,000, and when they were done, there were 12 baskets full. Why? To say to these 12 You give everything you have away, you'll be taken care of. A whole basket for every one of you. Get it? No, they didn't get it. They weren't thinking. They weren't observing. They weren't understanding. They weren't evaluating. They needed a college education. (laughs) Like ours, not all. That's what we do. And with that observation, and that understanding, and that evaluation, they were supposed to have different emotions when they saw him on the water. Those are the first four habits of mind that we try to build into students. Observe, understand, evaluate, feel differently about that ghost. Question, why didn't they get it? What stands between real education and where they were? And he answers, verse 52, at the end, they did not understand, that's the the mind, about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Their heads didn't work because their hearts weren't right. Get it? There's no education without a right heart. The mind won't work. It won't work right without a heart. This is foundational for all we do at this college. Heart transformation is the great inner foundation of all true education. I like that sentence because it rhymes a lot. Heart transformation is the great inner foundation of all true thinking, all true education. If the mind isn't, if the heart isn't right towards Christ, the mind won't work right. It won't work right. Now, 
Go to Matthew 16 with me. I want you to see it one more time before we wrap it up. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. This is all about education without being about education. Verse 1, Matthew 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, like this is out of the blue, right? (laughs) Show us a sign. And he says, "Uh, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. So red in the morning, sailor's warning, red at night, sailor's delight, that's where that comes from. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. And you can't interpret the signs of the times. These are smart people. They know how to do syllogisms. You know what syllogism is? Premise one, all men are mortal. Premise two, Plato is a man. Conclusion, Plato is mortal. Syllogism. They got that. You can't get home today from this church without syllogisms. You don't need to know the word, but that's just the way your brain works. This, this, this are true, therefore this is going to happen. That's how you get home. God made you that way because that's the way he is. These Pharisees and Sadducees were really good at syllogistic reasoning. Premise one, when the sky is red in the evening, weather is fair. Premise two, this evening, the sky is red. Conclusion, fair weather tonight, let's go sailing on the Sea of Galilee. They're smart. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way our minds are supposed to work. Keeps ourselves alive, keeps us useful. You don't drown in the sea if you can think that way. You know how to interpret. Now watch this. It's verse 3. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. In other words, you use your brain exactly the way you should. That's why God gave you a brain. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In other words, your brain works just fine when you're deciding whether to go sailing because your life is at stake on when you go sailing. But when it comes to observing, understanding, evaluating, and loving the Son of God who's working miracles in your present, your brain stops working. It's the same point as Mark 6. Why did it stop working, the brain, the Pharisee brain and the Pharisee, the Sadducee brain? Why did it stop working when it came to Jesus? And he gives the answer in the next verse, verse 4. An evil 
an adulterous generation keeps on demanding another sign, another sign, another sign. Give us one from heaven. It's never enough. Why? They're adulterous. They're adulterous. Their hearts are adulterous, so their brains aren't working. What does that mean? I think it means spiritual adultery, not mainly sexual adultery here. Spiritual adultery means Jesus came into the world to be the bridegroom of his people. The bride looked at him and said, no, thank you. I love money. Luke 16, chapter 14, the Pharisees were lovers of money. Matthew 6, they loved the praise of man. They had another woman. And it wasn't Jesus, but they had another man. It wasn't Jesus. If you love anything more than Jesus, your brain will not work right when thinking about Jesus. It won't. The heart that is bent away from Jesus will find a hundred reasons not to observe accurately Jesus. Not to understand clearly Jesus. Not to evaluate fairly Jesus. And certainly not to feel any love for Jesus because the heart is saying, don't you even go there. I love my money. I love the praise of man and Jesus messes with it. Today, Jesus would say to the scientists who don't believe, you know how to use your minds to get to the moon, and you don't know how to use your minds to get to heaven. What a tragedy. So smart and so foolish. If you're not on your way to heaven, getting to the moon is nothing. Nothing or Mars, for that matter. A hard heart, an adulterous heart, prevents the mind from observing accurately, understanding correctly, evaluating truly and biblically, and feeling emotions that are appropriate to the reality you're looking at. If we succeed with our students, they will have the critical powers to join the team that gets to Mars. But far better, they will be on the team that gets to heaven and gets other people to heaven. They can do both. If you're wondering now, as I close with this last minute, what became of 1 Corinthians 2? Why did you have him read that? I'm going to leave you to think that through because that's what we do in college. <laughs> we have homework. But I'm going to give you a pointer for this afternoon's work as you look at that passage through the lens of this message. And the pointer is in verses 14 to 16. Paul says, the natural person, that is the person without the Holy Spirit, sees God and his ways as foolish. And therefore, they cannot understand. 
They're, they're evaluating capacity, is short-circuiting, and they are saying, foolish, the cross is foolish, the death of a Messiah is foolish, it's a stumbling block, and therefore they cannot use their brains correctly when it comes to spiritual reality. And then he says, the spiritual person, that is the person who's been changed by the Spirit, sees God and his ways as wisdom and beauty. And therefore, they understand the whole world through the light of the greatest truth, Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And Paul calls this the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. That's our goal at Bethlehem College, the mind of Christ. And it's my goal for, for you. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing our prayer for the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to pray as a congregation by singing, would you grant the mind of Christ to your people, the mind about everything, the way Christ would see everything? I ask this in his name. Amen.